Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. Uh, we've been talking about how money represents energy, right? And so when you trade your hard-earned dollars towards that car payment, you're basically saying, you know, I believe I'm going to have to exert this amount of energy in order to translate it to, uh, you know, that, that payment that I want. So, and not everybody's money earning potential is the same, you know, like if you've got a unique skill set or you provide a unique, a unique service uh, or, or provide a good that's in high, high demand, your earning potential is probably going to be higher than somebody that's doing some type of unskilled labor. So, um, what else is going on besides your car being in the shop? Anything else interesting happened this weekend? I went to a wedding this past weekend, and the weekend before I had went to a, a baby birthday party. I'm not a big fan of parties. I'm not a big fan of weddings, but I mean, you know, like, I'm very, even though I like am good at being extroverted as a teacher, I can talk, I can present, I can, you know, communicate well. Like, when I'm not, when I'm in my own personal life, I don't like to do a lot of interacting. I don't know. I'm just, I'm really, has anyone ever taken a personality test? You ever take one? Are you considered introverted or extroverted? Introvert. Okay. See, for me personally, like, I'm an introvert. I'm the guy at the dance standing in the corner, hoping, like, wanting to, kind of wanting to talk to people, but not really. Are you, you feel me on this? Yeah. Yeah? Right. Sure, I agree. Like, I've got my own like group of people that I, I really want to talk to and I enjoy talking with, and we can have social. But like outside of that bubble, like I'm very, I like my a long time. You know, my daughter said to me yesterday, "Daddy, when I grow up and I get my license, you're gonna like regret. You know, like you're gonna miss me and want to hang out with me." And I said, "Well, that's true, but in, in case you hadn't noticed, I'm kind of a loner, and my wife knows this about me. Like, we get along great." But I do like, I mean, I'm fine going to a movies by myself. You know, I have no problem with that. I don't have to be, I could go to dinner by myself. I don't care. You know, it's just, you know, that's just how I am. So, has that, like, does anybody do that, by the way? You might go to the movies by themselves or go to a dinner by themselves. You feel weird doing that? Yeah. It's, I would do that. I haven't you haven't done it? Yeah. It's weird. Like, I'll go to lunch sometimes by myself here. And, you know, I like to listen to podcasts and so, or audiobooks or things. So I can just listen to that and, and do my own thing. So, but anyway, I go to this wedding this weekend, and nice environment, good, good catering. Um, but <laughs> anytime you bring alcohol into the mix, like, I just don't, I don't know. Like, I'm not a drinker myself. I drink probably less than, I would say less than five drinks, probably less than three drinks a year. I'm just not a drinker. I just don't like it. Um, and so, like, there was some, like, I guess drama that played out, you know, at the wedding, you know, people screaming and stuff, and I'm like, this is not the first time I've seen this happen at a wedding, you know, or like people overindulge and then they've got some drama to bring out. So, yeah, that's, uh, that was interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to like be the responsible person and like we've got little kids here and stuff, you know, like let's not, let's not get involved in any of this mess, you know. So, I don't know. It was just, uh, <laughs> you got a lot of people rubbernecking trying to see what's going on and I'm like, okay, we need to get out of here. I just, I just don't want to hear any loud drama or anything. So, uh, anything else worth mentioning to talk about? 
It's okay if you don't. I mean, if you've got something that you want to throw out there, by all means, bring it up. I do like to encourage you guys to uh, like read articles, anything that's in the news uh, that you want to talk about or current events, things happening in your personal life, things happening at work. I'm not trying to get in your business, but what I am trying to do is have dialogue. We want to have open communication because what communication does is team builds. And this is a management technique that uh, we try to do in the classroom, but I encourage you guys to do it at work. So, like, we would have morning meetings at Walmart, and there's a lot of things I didn't like about Walmart, uh, but this was something that I did like, I thought was a good thing, where people come together and they could just fellowship a little bit and talk and, and find out, you know, how you doing, how was your weekend. These, these seemingly benign little things are a really good way to, to team build and bring people together. So um, start thinking about things that you want to incorporate into our conversations. Uh, I will go ahead and bring up, we watched uh, the documentary on Friday about Wells Fargo. And I know you had the weekend to kind of think that, take that in. I hadn't thought about it much since Friday. Thought about it a little bit, but what reactions do you have from that, if any? Like, do you have any comments on that? I'll say that this is a common story. Like, this is not just, it's not just limited to the banking industry or Wells Fargo, but it's a common story across, you know, many industries. And, you know, I try to look at things from multiple angles. Like, I try to look at it from Wells Fargo's side, try to look at it from the complainant side, um, try to look at it from the customer side. So there's no doubt in my mind that some type of ethical thing happened, ethical, you know, impropriety. Uh, the fact that they were f pushing so much pressure on retail bankers to open these accounts and making them feel like, I mean, you have to understand, people's jobs, it comes down to existence. Like, if I don't have a job, like, it's, it's so nuts to think about it this way, but this is kind of the way you have to think about it. In the modern world, if you don't have income, then you don't have food, shelter, security, right? You've got to have some type of income, uh, some type of uh, means to provide for yourself and your family. And so when that means is threatened, so you're thinking you're, you're, if you're going to take my job, you're threatening you know, my, my, my ability to feed my family, the ability to uh, provide shelter to my family. I mean, people losing their jobs and going homeless is a real thing. You know, people, that happens. And so I can understand from the retail banker perspective they're putting so much pressure on me to open these accounts. Eight a day, that's a lot. I mean, like if I went to the, back to the car business, they said, you got to sell eight cars a day every day. I can tell them right now, that's, that sometimes I'd go weeks and not sell a car. And it's not necessarily, it's just there's an ebb and flow to industry. You know, like uh, no matter what industry it is, there are times when it's really busy and there's times when it's not. When I was in admissions, I worked in admissions for University of Mount Olive, and uh, at times, they would uh, say, you know, there would be lean times where students weren't enrolling, namely like during the summer, but right before fall, like two, three weeks before fall, everybody wanted to get in classes. Same thing's true here. You know, like I really push students to go ahead and get pre-registered during like open or, or prior to registration times, and students are not really interested in that until like <laughs> two or three weeks out from class. Then I have people contact me the day before. I've been trying to get up with them all semester, you know, to register. Here's the day before the next semester starts. Oh, it's finally finally hearing from you. So, um, but yeah, I get it from the retail banker perspective, their frustration and why they would feel like they had to open fake accounts because it's either that or lose my job. I lose my job, you know, we're talking a threat to my existence, my family's existence. From the customer perspective, 
I understand why the customers will be upset because they're getting charged fees that otherwise they wouldn't be charged. And it's really subjective. You know, you might say, oh, it's only 10 or $15 a month or whatever, but that's a lot of money over time. You know, I mean, you know, and it, that's also a subjective statement. $15 a month is $180 a year. That's real, that's real value that's being stolen from people. And so somebody had to work, you know, uh, you know, if it's $10 an hour to make it, they had to work 18 hours just to pay those fees that the bank is just taking, you know, and uh, that's just so they could have more revenue and brag about their cross-selling model. Did you guys see that? Cross-selling where they were trying to get customers that were there for a bank account to sign up for multiple t uh, things for the business, like their, their retirement planning. What's that? I'll repeat that again, I'm sorry. I said that shocked me the most. Yeah. And see, like, that's, I don't care. If a CEO tells you it's not about the money, it's about this kumbaya, we love our customers, we love our communities, that's complete garbage. Like, they may only admit to a handful of people on earth that it's about the money, that we're here to, to get rich. We're here to, uh, you know, get ourselves a return. They, on, the, on the figurehead side of it, the public side, they're there to say, oh, we care about our customers. They don't care about their customers. They, they just don't. I mean, like, they don't know your customers' names. They don't, they don't know their faces, really. I mean, it's just, it's a process, you know. It's like, one reason I'm drawn to higher education is because I feel like we do care about our customers, our students, you know. Like, we actually care about doing things that make a difference, a positive impact in your life. And that's, that's legit. That's me saying that. When I worked at Walmart, um, it was just survival mode, you know, like, okay, you know, customers will be upset about this and there will be little, a few things I could do to help that situation, you know. And uh, the Walmart has this mantra of satisfaction guaranteed, but I can't tell you how many thousands of customers every day in America, customers are mad at Walmart for something, you know. So what other comments would you have about this? Um, it did go down that the CEO did have to resign. Um, he may have stated some other reason he's leaving the company, but the real, like other sickening thing about cases like this is that most of the time, like 90 plus percent of the time, a corporate leader will step down and they'll get paid $1 million to $100 million to $200 million in golden parachutes and compensation packages that they negotiate before they even start. So if I leave, I get $100 million. And so they walk away $100 million and, then, you, know, and you saw the second CEO that stepped up he got grilled before Congress. But when I see these grillings before Congress, at the end of the day, that's just a dog and pony show, in my opinion, meaning that uh, it does, I mean, you get to see it on TV, but it has very little impact, in my opinion, on corporate, you know, how they change, you know. The only thing that really uh, seems to get these people's attention is, is, like, fees and penalties. But those don't go far enough, you know. Like, they mentioned, I think, $180 million fee, but when you're doing $20 billion a year, and, you know, that's $180 million is, is just like, a, you know, wish we didn't have to pay it, but oh well. And that probably only negatively impacts not the customers, but the employees. There's the ones not getting bonuses now or things like that. The ones at the top are still going to get this, their compensation. So, um, But there's a couple different documentaries slash films I'll show throughout the semester and they all have similar themes, which is ethical dilemmas are present. And, you know, it's obvious to everyday people what the correct thing to do is. But you see very powerful people, rich and powerful people doing very corrupt, 
unethical things and justifying it in their mind, saying, you know, there's a reason why we can do this and get away with it. And it's almost like there's one that I like to show. Um, it's called Payday. It's about the payday lending industry. And the guy who's the quote-unquote villain in this, in this documentary, it's almost like in their mind they have psyched themselves into believing that they've done nothing wrong at all. Like they can't see how unethical some of these things they're doing is. And, and you know, in that example, I shouldn't tell you what happens on that one because we might watch it at some point in the semester. It's really, in my opinion, it's even better than, than the one we watched. So. Any other comments on Wells Fargo? But now, for the rest of your life, when you see Wells Fargo, you'll probably have that association with, oh, it's a big bank that has, that has done some uh, pretty incredible things that, that went against consumer trust. So, All right. Well, I'm going to jump into Chapter 2, and I do encourage you guys, if you have any questions, comments, please jump in. Uh, chapter 1, we kind of, had a, kind of broke the ice on what, what, what goes into management, kind of the roles managers play. Chapter 2 is about decision-making, which is a specific... Uh, factor of management you know you can have like I said before you can have a great idea you can have a tremendous plan but without decision making and action it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you have the best plan on paper it doesn't matter if you've made these great decisions if without without putting it into action it's all it's all you know worthless so let's take a look at chapter two managerial decision making so this chapter the basic characteristics of managerial decision making we're going to talk about that Two systems of decision-making in the brain. What is the difference between programmed and non-programmed decisions? What barriers exist that make effective decision-making difficult? How can a manager improve the quality of her individual decision-making? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of group decision-making, and how can a manager improve the quality of group decision-making? So we're going to talk about a little bit of all that. So the basic characteristics of managerial decision-making Decision-making is the action or process of thinking through possible options and selecting one. Anybody play chess in here? You want to learn? Okay. We need to get a chess club going at Wayne. We don't have one. And I, I love chess. I'm kind of a – I would say I'm an intermediate player. I'm definitely – most of the time I play, I lose because I play really good people and I'm, I'm just kind of in the middle. Um, and over time, I can tell my chess is kind of – I mean, I don't think I've improved that much over time. Like, I think I'm a decent player, but uh, I feel like <laughs> there's this one guy, Henry, I play. He is just a tremendous chess player. And I've gotten close to beating him a couple times, but it just all falls apart on me. I think I go on tilt when my plan falls apart, and I just my emotion starts getting to it, and I get really upset. But I try to, like, maintain that, you know. But we do need a chess club going. I need to start that. That needs to be a goal for next year, get chess club going. So, but chess is very much, there's, there's, there's a lot of strategy that goes into chess, and there's a lot of strategy that goes into decision-making for managers. Because in chess, when you make a move, you have to anticipate what your opponent is going to do in response to that, and then how you're going to respond to that. And so, like, if I, if I put out a product or service, I have to anticipate what could my competition do to respond to that. You know, um, an example that popped in my head there's this automatic car wash that just opened on Berkeley. It's, I think, Rocket. Rocket. Have you done that yet? Um, you go through, you can pay a one-time fee, and they'll kind of wash you off, and then you go and uh, go through the automatic wash. Uh, and I think it's a neat service. I actually subscribe to the one in Clinton, but I, I haven't been in two weeks. I, I plan to go, but just being busy, I just haven't had a chance to go. 
So uh, when that car wash opened, how did all the other competitors respond in Goldsboro? Did they all think, do we need to change our business model or are we going to be fine? It's not going to impact us. You know, these are real questions. And then Rocket, the new one, on, the new kid on the block, needed to ask, well, if we open, what changes are our competitors going to do that might try to compete with us? You know, because obviously we're going to be the new shiny toy that everybody wants to try out. And so what are we going to do different that separates us from hand-washing car stations, from coin-based uh, car washes? So these are real uh, questions that these companies need to ask and then try to figure out kind of how we're going to proceed and respond in accord accordingly. So it's important to recognize that managers are continually making decisions and that the quality of their decision-making has an impact, sometimes quite significant, on the effectiveness of the organization and its stakeholders. Stakeholders are all the individuals or groups that are affected by an organization, such as customers, employees, and shareholders. Anybody that's connected, even indirectly, to an organization is a stakeholder. Let's say that Wayne Community College and the hospital closed down. That's, they're the big businesses on this street, right? Wayne Memorial. That's going to have a big impact on all the businesses around here. You know, they might see 30, 40, 50% drop off in lunch sales if you're a restaurant on Wayne Memorial because they depended on all the business from the hospital and the college to kind of drive sales. And so even though you have nothing to do, you don't think, uh, like PT's Grill, PT's has no direct connection to Wayne, but they thrive off people coming down this street because uh, of the, the students, the employees, the faculty, the, uh, the people at the hospital. And so, yeah, that is a, we, they are very much a stakeholder of this institution, and they want to see these institutions thrive because it helps their business. Uh, shareholders are a little bit different. Shareholders are people that actually own a piece of the business. You know, they own a, a share in the company, like a stock. All right, so these are the type of questions managers have to continually ask. What is the right, meaning the correct answer? What is the right or correct answer? And then what is the right ethical answer? So it is very much possible for an organization to provide managers with an unethical out like response, meaning that they're asked managers to do things that are unethical. Organizations in the past have been guilty of telling their managers, hey, we need to save some payroll, so what I want you to do is go into the system change some numbers to take people that have overtime and, and take that overtime off and move it to next week. That way they'll still get their pay, but they won't get overtime pay. That is unethical, right? Because under the law, these people are due that overtime pay. You're, taking, you're stealing money out of their pocket. And not only is it a law, it's an it's a ethical, ethical right thing to do I mean, because we want to compensate people fairly for the work they put forth. Um, so, yeah, you have to constantly ask yourself, if, if I'm in a situation, if organization is putting me as a manager in a situation where I feel like I'm doing things that are unethical, I need to look for another job somewhere else. Because, you know, I can, you might can understand something happening, like just like this one random unethical thing popped up and it got worked out. Uh, but never, never, like, compromise your integrity for anybody. If somebody asks you to lie, cheat, and steal at work, Never do it because what happens is eventually it's going to come out. You're going to be implicated and, and you're probably going to lose your job. You could have legal consequences and then people will never trust you again. People will always look at you and say, you know, I trust this person, but there was this time when they had this ethical thing, right? They lie, cheat, stole. 
And you think about people in your personal lives, friends of the family, people you know that may have had an ethical, you know, a botched ethical experience, and that comes up, you know, like it's, it's, it's kind of like we subconsciously label people as, you know, like, I, it, let me give you an example. I've got a friend of the family whose son uh, has been in jail a couple times, you know, nothing major, drug offenses, maybe some theft, I don't know. But now when I think about this person, that's the first thing possible in mind, okay? This person's been to jail a couple times. And like, you know, I know there's no judgment against that for people in jail. There's great people that go to jail. There's not so great people. But that's a kind of a already a subconscious classification in my mind. And so like, let's say this person came to me one day, if I had a business and said, hey, will you hire our son? What's gonna go off in my mind? You know, it's like, well, yeah, I know you. I know you're a friend of the family. But, you know, can I trust this individual? You know, and these are, these are things that managers have to constantly weigh and, and try to figure out. So there is two rights, the right that the company says that we must do and then the ethical thing. Um, I will say that for compliance and legal reasons, most companies want to walk on the right side of ethics. You know, but time and time again, we see uh, managers, leaders, CEOs, presidents that take Unethical, the unethical path. You know, they want to look the other way when their employees are doing unethical things. Like, I can just, I can cite so many cases, but let's say that, you know, you work at a company and the president finds out there's been some sexual harassment happening. One of their, one of their star, like, you know, workers has been accused of sexually harassing somebody. Well, they say, you know, this person performs very well for us, so we don't want to really ruffle, you know, rock the boat. So we're just going to look the other way, not say anything, hope it goes away, right? Well, then, you know, fast forward two years, the multiple people that are accused are now filing a class action lawsuit against the company, tens of millions of dollars, and, you know, the, the leader didn't, have, didn't address it, and they knew about it. And so, yeah, there's just, uh, it's always best to be ethical and get everything out in the open and address problems rather than try to let them fester and go away because they won't go away. So what are the two systems of decision-making in the brain? The human brain processes information for decision-making using one of two routes, a reflective system and a reactive system. The reflective system is logical, analytical, deliberate, and methodical, while the reactive system is quick, impulsive, and intuitive, relying on emotion or habit to provide cues for what to do next. So reflective and reactive. What does our mind tell us to do, and what does our emotions say we, we should do? So everybody has seen this scenario where you have a customer who's upset, and that moment when the customer's upset, it's almost 100% reactive. I didn't get, the, the expectation wasn't met. You're in a restaurant, somebody cooked, a, you know, wanted a steak, medium, it comes back, medium well, or something like that, and you see somebody being belligerent and ugly about it, that's complete reactivity. They're not thinking logically that, hey, if I speak politely to this person, they're probably just going to bring me another steak. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. You know, like, if I have to have my steak medium, yeah, they'll, they'll, I'm sure they'll send out a manager. It's not right. They'll fix it, you know, and maybe give me a discount. But I understand, like, from time to time, I get reactive. We all do. We all have these, this urge to think out of emotion or use our emotions to drive us but when that's happening, we're not s s taking time to process the situation and figure out what's the best course of action. Research in neuropsychology suggests that the brain can only use one system at a time. 
for processing information, and that the two systems are directed by different parts of the brain. The prefrontal, prefrontal cortex is more involved in the reflective system, remember the logic, and the basal ganglia and amygdala, more primitive parts of the brain from an evolutionary standpoint or perspective, are more involved in the reactive system. So reflective, uh, we're getting logic, and reactive, we're getting emotion. Um, that reactive brain, one of my favorite authors, Seth Godin, calls it the lizard brain, meaning our primitive brain that, uh, quote-unquote, lizard people, you know, would, would use as, as, that directs us from this fight-or-flight standpoint. You know, uh, we're constantly on the defense or the offense. And... It's not all about that life. You know, you have to kind of look at what's the middle ground and, lo and logically figure out your way through that. Uh, any questions on anything so far? Comments? Okay. So let's talk about emotional intelligence a little bit. Um, I've worked with a number of different managers, studied management, and to me, the best managers have a high degree of emotional intelligence. What that means is they're able to not only regulate their own emotion, but they're also able to identify emotions in other people and understand what people are going through. That empathy. Empathy is such an important word and an important uh, trait that managers should possess. Uh, like, have you ever been in a situation where people are emotional and something bad has happened and people have a right to be emotional and this one person doesn't get it? They're like, why are you upset? You know, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, it's like, like, and what I've come to understand is that people have emotional spectrums and they operate, everybody's different. You know, some things that some people perceive as horrible and they're crying about it, uh, that, that spectrum is, is very different for every individual. And so, uh, but some managers are truly just don't have empathy or very low, they're very low on the empathy scale. They can't understand, you know, like, oh, you can't come into work today because a family member died. You know, I don't get that. You know, like, how can you not get that? You know, like, even like you're, even if you're not emotional about it, the logic in your brain should tell you that people are not going to, you know, have a good day if a family member has passed away. They're, they're not going to be productive at work and they're going to need some time. And so you've got to, if you can't use your, uh, uh, emotion to empathize with people. You've got to use your brain, your logic, your reflective side of your brain to recognize that people do have emotions and they need to be able to uh, express those and have somebody that can understand what they're going through. That's not to say that you should be a shoulder to crown for all your employees, but that's not that's not what I'm saying. I just say that um, you need to empathize with people and understand how they feel. Um, there's, there's actually several steps that we could talk about at a later point about how to like be empathetic with people. But emotional intelligence is the ability to recognize, understand, pay attention to, and manage one's own emotions and the emotions of others. It involves self-awareness and self-regulation. Essentially, this is a toggling back and forth between emotions and logic so that we analyze and understand our own emotions and then exert the necessary control to manage them as appropriate for the situation. I'm not a psychologist. Don't pretend to be one. One of my good friends is a psychologist. Um, we have a lot of dialogue about psychology. And uh, I imagine being a, a counselor is challenging because you'll sometimes hear devastating stories that the person is upset because of this devastating story. And you have to 
manage that yourself. I mean, you might have a the human part of you and the the emotional side makes you maybe want to cry too to empathize with that person. But at the same time, you're there to be analytical and logical and try to help them work through whatever this devastating story is. But management, uh, you kind of go through some of the same things. Remember last week I talked about one of the caps you might wear as a manager is a coach or counselor. You're not there, once again, to be somebody's counselor, but you're going to be presented with these types of scenarios in management. That happens. I had it happen multiple times when I was a manager at Walmart. People come to the office, sit down, start crying. And, you know, there's so many different, like, alarms that go off, like, you know, number one from a just a question side of it or questioning side of it is, is this person trying to use emotion to get me to respond in a certain way? Are they playing with my emotions? Are they trying to play me? Or is this a genuine thing that somebody's going through they need to talk about? And... Uh, like I said, you're not there to be a counselor, but you are there to be a listener and communicator to empathize. Uh, the thing that I kind of took with me from Walmart is that when people, uh, you're there to listen, but you still have to get things done. And so that's what I explain to people over again. Over again, it's like, uh, I understand, uh, I empathize that you're going through this. I understand you're going through this. We have a, a goal here that we're trying to accomplish. If you need X amount of time, just let me know. Um, but we have parameters we have to stay within. And I'm, we're here to help, you know, provide whatever referral to counseling services you can. We actually have counseling services here on campus for anybody that needs that. Um, and so if you ever needed that, just uh, let me know via email. We can, we can refer you to that. So emotional intelligence also involves empathy. That word keeps popping up, and it will. The ability to understand other people's emotions and, and interest in doing so. Um, Management is not easy. Business is not easy. Uh, when you're having to manage your own tasks, your time, your emotions, uh, your thinking, and then trying to help deal with other people's problems, uh, that, that can be challenging, but that's why you're the manager. You're there to be able to help, step in and help people. Um, a lot of times people just need some reassurance. You know, They've got all these things happen in their life just like you do. They just need some reassurance that everything's going to be okay, some validation. You know, we validate that what you're going through, what you're struggling with is legitimate, and we're here to help any way we can. You go through that. Now, uh, there is a limit to everything. Like I said, a company's not there to be a counselor. They're there to accomplish an objective, selling a good or service, and there are limits to what a company can do. And if an employee just goes beyond those limits of what a company can do, there may be a separation involved. It may, it may come down to a termination. But most of the time, companies want to work with people. It's expensive to have people leave your company and replace them. It just is. When I was at Walmart, the metric was, I think, $2,400 was the turnover cost, meaning that if one person left, it cost us $2,400 worth of time and energy to replace that person because you think about the time it goes involved in searching, interviews, hiring process, training process, right? I mean, there's a lot of energy that goes into that replacement. And so, like, when somebody's hired, it takes one to two months to hire somebody when I was at Walmart. It's a long process. They have to go through background checks. They have to go through uh, uh, the interview process. They have to go through the, the actual orientation process. Then after that, they have to go through a long training process of – watching computer-based learning modules and, and learning all these things they need to know about compliance. Uh, and so 
this, this graphic here of emotional intelligence talks about self-awareness, self-regulation, empathy, and social skills. Yeah, uh, being able to communicate is an art and a science. Being able to show empathy is an art and a science. Uh, even if you're not a very empathetic person, you can still come across as empathetic by showing interest in people and being willing to listen. Um, sometimes people come from, from homes that they've got nobody to talk to, and they need, they need some type of reinforcement, and managers are there to help do that. Like I said, they're not there to solve everybody's problems, but they're there to, to listen and help. So we talked about programmed and non-programmed responses before. So programmed decisions are those that are repeated over time for which an existing set of rules can be developed to guide the process. These decisions might uh, be simple or they could be fairly complex, but the criteria that goes into making the decisions are all known or at least can be estimated with reasonable degree of accuracy. So non-programmed decisions, in contrast, uh, they're novel, unstructured decisions that are generally based on criteria that are not well defined. With non-programmed decisions, information is more likely to be ambiguous or not certain or, or definite or incomplete, and the decision maker may need to exercise some thoughtful judgment and creative thinking to reach a good solution. Let me give you an example from a personal life, then I'll try to um, relate one to business. But every week we have a routine for the most part. My kids are in school. We have a morning routine. The night before, we prepare, we'll get their clothes together, we've got their book sack together, shoes, socks, all that good stuff. Um, kind of get in mind what we're doing for lunch. Sometimes I'll prepack some of my son's lunch stuff. And then that morning, we have uh, alarms that are going off, people that are getting up, prep work that's getting done, getting out the door because my wife needs to leave the house around 7.15 or 7, 7.05, 7.15 range. And I usually leave, depending on the day, you know, about 7.45. Um, and then when I go, go to work, I have a routine, you know, I've got to uh, you know, teach and then I've got to grade homework and do all these other administrative tasks. Uh, and then I've got to leave by a certain time so I can go pick the kids up, you know, get, get, get in mind what I'm doing for supper. All these things are a program response, program decisions with me. These are things that we do throughout the week and they all must happen. You know, I must show up to work. I must pick up the kids from school. I must prepare, get supper for them. But... And any, this happens every year, every, every semester, something will, uh, like a curveball, flat tire, you know, or car trouble, whatever, whatever that you know, might happen. Uh, any other of these wacky you know, things that could happen, that throws off the whole plan. You know, kind of, you have to make adjustments. And so, like, I hope I don't get a flat tire going home today, but if I did, I would have to figure out pretty quickly what's, what's the plan B. I'm gonna have to call, you know, my mother or father-in-law, get them, you know, on the road to get my kids from school. Then I'm gonna have to call, you know, um, my I've got nationwide like roadside assistance. I'm gonna call them, get them to come get me. You know, it's just you're gonna have to react. And so, like, if Plan B doesn't work out, then I gotta go to Plan C. What's the next thing? If I can't get up with nationwide, you know, you know, who am I gonna call next? You know, figure. You have to. Use, what if I don't have a cell phone? You know, like. How many of you freak out if you leave yourself on a home? You feel weird, right, without it now. When I was a teenager, you know, there was a time I didn't have a cell phone, and you just rode all around everywhere without one, and I can't imagine now, like, having a flat tire breakdown, and I can't get up with anybody. That's, ugh, you know, that just that doesn't feel good. So, But in business, the same type of stuff happens. You have these programmed decisions and processes that go, th go forth every day, every week, this is how we do our business. You know, like we talked about the farming and your dad's already got kind of a plan for what's going to happen. But if a major hurricane comes through Eastern NC, 
that's going to get turned on its head a little bit. There's going to be adjustments. Right now, we're meeting in the classroom, and uh, it's typical to either have a hurricane or some type of winter storm that may disturb this process. It's more typical for the hurricanes in the fall and the winter storm in the spring. But yeah, when I, it was a year or two ago where we were supposed to come back for spring classes, and there was a bad winter like frost on the ground and ice on the roads, and we kind of delayed going back to class for a day or two or something like that. First day of back to class, and it just threw me off, and I had to, you know, had, had to like kind of go on tilt and figure out my way through that. So these are unstructured decisions. But you kind of want to, like we talked about at the very beginning, like in chess, be thinking through how am I going to respond if this thing happens, right? What am I going to do if this doesn't work out? Um, some of the bigger decisions in life, my wife and I are buying a house at the moment, and it's just been almost completely reactive because uh, there wasn't a roadmap laid out for us saying, these are the steps we're going to go through. It wasn't that at all. It was like, okay, you've done this step, now go, now do this. It's like they just feed you little pebbles along the way of what to do, you know. And I would like to see a roadmap of from point A to point B, you know, here without a house, here with a house, here's how it works. But, yeah, I, that's kind of – I'm going to give them some feedback after it's done saying, you know, this was my experience. I'd like you to take this and see what you can do with it. Probably won't do anything with it. You know, they'll probably throw it out the window, but – uh, if I was providing the service to a consumer, uh, and I, I would want to give them a better experience. So, all right, any questions about any of this so far? Comments? I don't do a lot of talking. I want to give you guys a chance to talk. I'd like to give myself a chance to breathe. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. All right, we'll go over just a little bit more today. So, let's talk about the decision-making process, and this will be the last thing we get into before we take a break for the day. Um, does anybody remember the scientific methods? Yeah. yeah, what do you remember about the scientific method? Seventh grade. What's that? I, observation. I can't hear that word. Observation. observation, okay. So scientific method is you have an idea, right? I think this will work, okay? So that's your hypothesis. You have an idea. And then you have to develop, a, uh, do some research about that idea to see if anybody's looked at that idea before and then you start to develop a way to test that idea. Then you actually test it, and then you report on your results whether it worked or not, okay? So here's a high, simple hypothesis. I think if you mix Coke and Pepsi together, it would make a drink that's better than both. That's my hypothesis. So I'll look and see what other background information's been done on drink mixing, see if there's anything out there on that. Defining nothing in the papers, I say, well, I'm gonna do a test. I'm going to get, you know, 50 students together. We're going to blend Coke and Pepsi together and, you know, ask them several questions after they drink it. You know, do you think this is, is this Coke? Is this Pepsi? What do you think? Do you think which one tastes better, this or Coke or Pepsi? You know, and so, like, you know, just kind of do some research on it and then see what kind of outcomes we get from that, you know. Uh, so in business, in decision-making process, we have our own kind of scientific method and this is, um, for people that haven't studied business, um, I've talked to people, other academics, that haven't studied business or don't teach business, and they don't think that business has a lot of scientific method in it, but there's actually quite a bit. Um, this is kind of our scientific method for decision-making. Recognize the decision needs to be made. We need to do something to change. Whatever we're doing is not working. And life will tell you, business will tell you and life will tell you. If you're in business and you're not getting sales, Something's not working. 
Does your product suck? Does your location suck? Uh, is your advertising not good? I mean, you know, what's not working? Uh, is your prices too high? I mean, find, you need to find out why you don't have the business that you thought you would have. So this could be, you have to do a little bit of research. Find out why don't I have that response and what kind of change can I make? Generate multiple alternatives. If I've got a donut shop, what's that funky fresh donut place that opened up? I'm not getting the foot traffic I want. What can I do to increase my foot traffic? Um, one thing, I'm not a big, I like Bath and Body Works, but my wife worked there for 13 years. And as a kid, I always had allergies walking in there. It made me sneeze a lot. So walking in there, it makes me like, oh, it just feel like I can't breathe. It's really, you get the, the air, feels like I'm breathing lotion, you know, like. But I got to give it to Bath and Body Works because they have a genius marketing attachment thing they do. Every time you go in there and buy something, what do you get? You get it's on sale, but what else do you get? You get a coupon. Come back because you've got the coupon now that you can put in your wallet, and next time you'll get a free item or even more stuff on sale. Old Navy does the same thing. Here's these super cash. Yeah, super bucks or super cash, whatever you call it. So my wife, she has she will take these super cash, put it in her wallet, and then if she needs something, anything in the realm of what Old Navy has to sell. She'll think, ding, 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 I've got super cash. That's a reason to go. And so um, that was somebody along the way in these businesses recognized, how can we get customers to keep coming back? They may go buy lotion. How long does a bottle of lotion last? A long time, right? So they don't need to come back for months. But if we have some type of instrument that allows them to come back early, well, that's great. So generate multiple alternatives, analyze the alternatives, figure out what do you think now would be the best course of action. What do you think would give you the most ROI on your investment of time and money? Select an alternative, implement the selected alternatives, and then evaluate its effectiveness. A lot of managers, a lot of organizations leave off that last one. They don't do the evaluation. They don't figure, they don't, they don't figure out, okay, what did it work? Did it not work? Do we need to change again? You know, uh, it's rare to have an organization, a company that goes to the market and has everything figured out right out of the gate and has to make no adjustments. Most companies have to make adjustments and then they have to continue to make adjustments to figure out what their customers won't need. Um, now another great film I show in this class, may or may not show the semester, is The Founder. Anybody seen it on, about McDonald's? Yeah, McDonald's, when they opened up, uh, the first version sold a bunch of different products, you know, all different types of products. Then they figured out most of our customers only buy five items. Drinks, fries, shakes, burgers, and then one other thing. I don't know what it was, but four or five items was, was they figured out as a core 80% of their sales. So they took everything off the menu and focused on these core items, you know, and that's kind of what McDonald's did early on. You know, you went to McDonald's in the 70s, 80s, it was very, you know, not, not as diverse as it is today. And I think that hurts McDonald's in my opinion. There's too much stuff on the menu. You know, like I, I think they should go back to a simplified uh, version, but in any case, um, they're constantly evaluating what works, what doesn't work, and they're having to ask themselves these questions. So, Any questions about any of this before we break up for today? All right, guys, I appreciate your time and attention. We'll pick it back up on Wednesday with Chapter 2, okay? See you then.